Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. children are heading downstairs. We are going to be in a, um, I've been saying this is atypical for Advent, and uh, when I I was sharing with a pastor friend of mine that I was going to be preaching out of a specific book for Advent, he said, "You're, you're using what book? And I said, no, no, I think it works. I think the book of Ruth is a great way to talk about Christmas. Um, and he struggled with it for a little bit, and then we talked about it, and he thought, that's actually a good idea. So he and I are good buddies, and we're both preaching out of Ruth for Advent this year. We've studied together. We've prayed together. We've encouraged one another, and we're going to continue to do so as we go through the book of Ruth. Um, But it is atypical as we go through the book of Ruth, looking for the Redeemer, the Advent message, and we're going to take it almost one chapter at a time. And we're going to go on a journey through the book of Ruth, so you may not get that typical Christmas feel until the very end. And I want to say that that's going to be okay, because we're going to be walking on a journey with a family for four weeks. And in order to understand the need for a Redeemer, we need to live with this family a little bit and learn how their family is a little bit like ours. So Ruth is a little bit of an atypical journey, but I think it will be okay. We're going to experience their ups and downs and the unexpected, and we're going to do it in story format. So um, if you would, stand with me. We're going to read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, and this is where we're going to leave off for today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his sons. Now, the name of the man was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malan and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the other name was Ruth. And they lived there ten years. Both Malan and Chilion then died so that the women were left without her sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, each of you return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in your own household. Then she kissed them, lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Do I have sons in my womb that can become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. And even if I could have hope that I would have a husband 
this night and could bear sons to you, would you wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against you. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Ruth is an interesting story. If you don't know the story, uh, you're in for a journey. If you do know the story, you know where we're going, um, but perhaps the journey will be a good one for you along the way. Um, I want to tell this story for you so that we understand it in a way that perhaps we haven't really dug into it before. These first 13 verses are not pleasant verses. This first 13 verses are kind of the ones where things are going okay and then uh, in the heart and the knife gets twisted and it gets ripped out and you're okay for a little bit and then it gets shoved back in again and twisted again and it leaves you just hanging. It leaves you just, what's going to happen next? And that's where we are going to be. So let's start with a guy named Elimelech, shall we? Guy named Elimelech, his name literally means God is my king. That's what his name means. And he has a beautiful wife. His wife's name is Naomi. And Naomi's name means pleasantness. So we've got a guy named God is my king married to a woman named Pleasantness. And they have this beautiful life starting out together. They're young. They're in love. They get married. They're starting a new family. They are living in God's beautiful promised land. This is the land that God has said it will be for my people and for their children. And for all time, this is the land that is flowing with milk and honey. You live here. You follow my rules. God's blessing will be with you. It is going to be amazing to be God's children in God's promised land. So they are looking forward to a life of blessing, a life of hope, a life of fruitfulness, all of the things that come from dwelling with God. But things got tough. We learn in verse 1 that this is when the judges were governing. And the judges were the people that God raised up to literally point a finger at God's people and say, stop sinning. Stop sinning. God doesn't like this. Stop sinning. And so the judges were going through the land saying, listen, if you don't stop sinning, things are going to go wrong in the promised land. And so the judges were calling the people to repent of their sinful ways. And at this time, the political climate was not exactly great either. So you've got religious prophets saying, listen, the way you're living life isn't super great. And you've got a political climate that is kind of heated at the moment because the nation of Israel is under siege. Part of the way that the nation is being judged is through the voice of the prophets. The other way that the nation is being judged is because God is using other pagan nations to inflict judgment on his chosen people. The nation of Midian was a nation that was striking Israel over and over and over again at this time. They were literally, Midian was decimating the promised land's actual land to the point that crops couldn't grow. They could not grow food. They were in deep famine. No land could grow food, and famine began to spread from one edge of the promised land to the other, all the way to Bethlehem, where it reached Elimelech and Naomi. Now, Elimelech was a guy who lived off the land, and the famine overtook his nation, and he thought, you want to know what? This is bad but it hasn't reached me yet. I'm okay, there's a buffer zone. Things are going to be okay because it's affecting those people, but it hasn't yet encroached upon my own life and family yet. But then the famine crept in even further, 
and it began to overshroud his family, the positive future and bright beginnings that he had with this idea of, um, I'm not sure how long this famine is going to last. My stores are running out. Um, I think we can tough it out. My neighbors are having a worse time than I'm having, um, but I'm the exception because my name means God is my king. My wife's name means pleasant. These are promises from my parents' generation to our generation that God will be my king and take care of me. And and my wife's name means pleasantness, so things are going to be pleasant for us. Surely this won't reach our land. Surely this won't reach our family. My land is good. I honor God. This is not going to strike my house and my family. And then it struck his house and his family. The famine hit Elimelech hard, and he was struggling as a family with two new boys. They had, they had kids. They had boys. I don't know if they were twins or not, so I made them the same height. Okay? Two boys were born to Elimelech and Naomi. They were named Malan and Chilion. And just so that you understand, when people named people in the Old Testament, they were given names as a blessing so that those names would mean something significant for the character of that person or a blessing into what that person's life would be like. So Elimelech, God is my king. You know what his parents wanted for him, right? They wanted him to trust God and follow God and have a result, uh, a re- uh, stout and resounding faith in God. And with Naomi Pleasantness, you can imagine what they wanted. Maybe she had an older sister that was a little unpleasant, okay? And they named her Pleasantness because they wanted her to exemplify that. So then we've got this family, and times are tough, and the famine is going, and he's like, it's reached my farm. And then they have two boys, Malin and Chilion, and they named them Sickly and Wasting Away. That's what the two boys' names meant, sickly and wasting away. And what we don't know from Scripture is whether the boys were born weak because of the famine's effect on Naomi when she was pregnant or if they were just sickly because they were sickly and that's how they were born. Needless to say, he named his children sickly and wasting away. That is the depth of the sadness and the grief and the sorrow of this time of famine. What we do know is that at some point in this process, after having the boys, the father of the household said, food has run out. We cannot live like this anymore. We are going to starve to death. Something has got to change. Something has got to change or we're going to die in the promised land. And so Elimelech made a choice to take his family from the promised land, from Bethlehem, the place where God's blessing dwelt, on a journey 50 miles to Moab. Elimelech made the choice to leave an inherited blessing, a land ripe with God's pleasantness, uproot his family and move them not to another portion of God's promised land, but he left the borders of God's promised land and he walked 50 miles to a pagan nation of Moab and when he left the promised land, It's not like if we move from Ketchikan to Seattle or Ketchikan to Orlando or anywhere else. It's not like no big deal, one city, another city. When you left the promised land, you crossed over that border, you were literally leaving God's promises behind you, his covenant faithfulness behind you, the promises and the blessings that come with being in the land behind you. You were abandoning the inheritance of God. You were abandoning everything that God had wanted to give you. And Elimelech was in such a desperate position that he said, 
I need to do anything I can to save my family's life, even if it means leaving the promised land. There has to be food for my family. They're sickly and wasting away. He left his family and his tribe and the blessings of God behind. And what's significant about this is everyone else who stayed and toughed it out would have looked at Elimelech and his family as the black sheep now. They were the ones that abandoned God. They abandoned God's promises. They abandoned the blessing. They jumped ship. They weren't good Jews anymore. They weren't good Yahweh fearers anymore. They were the black sheep of the family that would be shunned, never invited to the Thanksgiving dinner, never to darken the door of anyone else in their family's household because they didn't love God anymore. They turned their back on God. They were not God-fearers. They moved from God's land into Moab, which was the heart of pagan worship and culture. It was the location where there was no Yahweh God. There were multitudes of gods. See, in this day and time, nations held to the belief, even early Judaism held to the belief, that the territory of your land is where your God resided. And so when you left the border of your land, you left the territory of your God, and you entered into the territory of the other nation's gods. So he crossed out of the territory of Yahweh, so to speak, and into the territory of two other gods, the gods of Moab, because Moab didn't worship Yahweh. Moab worshipped Molech and Chemosh. And I don't know if you're familiar with those two names, but those were the gods that were worshipped through child sacrifice. Those were the gods that you would lay your children on the altar to Molech and say, this is my sacrifice to my God so that our crops are good. This is the land that he entered into to save his children's life. He entered a land where they worshipped through child sacrifice, but even though they were a pagan nation filled with false gods, they were a thriving city. They were organized. They had strong walls of protection. They had considerably healthier agriculture than Bethlehem. And so in a rock and a hard place, Elimelech said, I don't have a choice. We're going to die in Bethlehem, or I can pick my family up and move them to Moab, where we will be among pagan people, worshiping false gods, but we will have food for our stomach. And as a dad, he made the hard choice in the hard place. Right or wrong, it was the choice he made. And so now they're in Moab. The boys are growing, but something happens. Elimelech bought the farm. He died. He gets to Moab. He brings his whole family there. The boys grow up a little bit. And then Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow with two sons to provide for in a pagan nation outside of the promises of God's covenant fellowship. She had no family. She was not related to anyone in this nation. She was constantly under cultural pressure to worship through child sacrifice so that the gods would look favorably upon her. No doubt her neighbors would come to her and say, hey, take one of your children. What are they, sickly and wasting away anyway? Take one of them and sacrifice them on the altar of Molech so that our gods would look with favor upon you. She was under considerable pressure, weeping because her husband is dead with two boys all alone. Now the boys grew up, okay, as boys tend to do, and they took wives from Moab. So now we've got Naomi, and we've got sickly and wasting away, and their two wives, Orpah and Ruth. 
just a little nugget uh, for you uh, completely outside of the sermon. You guys are familiar with Oprah, right? You know the story behind her name? Her parents originally intended to name her Orpa from this story, inverted the letters on the birth certificate, and now she's Oprah. There you go. Fact and nugget for you for the week. Needless to say, the two boys grew up. They married Orpa and Ruth. They married outside of the Jewish faith. Wasn't really what you were supposed to do as good Jewish boys, right? But you're not living in the land of God's promise. You're living in Moab. You grew up there. You really don't know what it is to worship Yahweh in the temple. You don't know what it is to worship God through honorable sacrifices. You only know what you grew up with going to school with your friends, which is child sacrifice. And you only know the gods of Moab. And so here we have two boys who grow up in a pagan culture and their mom is trying to do the best she can, but culture is a strong force and they grow up and they marry two pagan Moabite girls. That's not great. You can't bring them home to Israel because they are the black sheep of the family now even more so because they have married outside of the faith. Now, it wasn't strictly prohibited to marry Moabite women. In the Old Testament, it wasn't strictly forbidden. There were nations where God said, never marry these people. Moab wasn't on that list, but it was not on the list of, hey, run out and marry Moabite women. Because when you intermarry, you are then mingling faith and gods and cultures, and it's going to begin to rip a family apart. It's going to go one way or the other. And so you've got moderately decent Jewish boys marrying incredibly pagan Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and they entered the family, and they lived for 10 years together as a family. Uh, I don't know which son married which, but we got the two couples, and we've got Naomi, and for 10 years they lived in Moab, and we don't know much about the 10 years, but we can assume they went fairly well because we don't hear anything about that. And then, 10 years after these boys get married, they die. And so we're left with Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have her sons. Her daughters-in-law don't have their husbands. And, um, well, frankly, they died young, right about 30-some-odd years of age. Uh, follow the timeline. Right about my age is when these boys died. Sickly or wasting away, perhaps they were their namesake, and that's why. But now we've got Naomi, a grieved widow of Elimelech, in a foreign land with no family, no job, no leader, no hope, with two daughters-in-law that have the same situation. They have no husband to provide for them. They have no leader of their family. They have no hope. They have no future with what's going on. It was an incredibly desperate situation for them, very reminiscent of the situation a couple moments ago in the story when they said, we have no food, we have to leave Bethlehem. Now they are in the exact same position. They are stuck. In this day and age, women didn't work. So without a husband to provide food for the family, these women were going to be out on the streets. They were going to be hungry and starving and vulnerable and taken advantage of. And so Naomi, having had her fill of Moab, Finally, she packs up one day and she says, I'm done. I'm heading back. I'm returning home to Bethlehem because I have no hope here. There's no promise for me here. 
God's covenant faithfulness is not extended to me here. I have experienced too much pain and grief and sorrow here, and I just can't take it anymore. I've heard, is what she said, I've heard that God is giving Bethlehem food again, that there's bread in Bethlehem, and, and I don't have anything here, and so I need that bread. I want that bread. And so Naomi made up in her mind to just turn her face to Bethlehem and walk 50 miles by herself, vulnerable to any kind of attack on that road. And this was not easy territory. This was very difficult hills and valleys separated with rivers, difficult land to walk by herself. And she said, I've got nothing here. I don't know if there's anything there. I've just heard rumors. But if I know nothing else, I know that I need to turn my face towards God and walk. And so that's what she chose to do. She packed up her stuff and she left. And scripture tells us that her two daughter-in-laws went with her But the wording used in scripture is that it is Naomi's journey to Bethlehem, not her daughter-in-law's. It was Naomi's decision to go, and her daughter-in-law's came with her, kind of trailing along, but it wasn't, they had not decided necessarily to go to Bethlehem, because they grew up in Moab, they didn't know anything about Bethlehem. She allowed them to travel with her for a short period of time on this journey, And I imagine it was partly for comfort and partly for safety because a larger group of people traveling together, even if they're all women, was going to be safer than one single woman traveling by herself. And partly for comfort because imagine you have got Orpah and Ruth and you're Naomi and you for the past 10 years have endured so much heartache and sorrow and suffering together. You are entwined in ways intimate and deep that you would not have otherwise been. And it would be very hard to separate yourself from that kind of relationship. Even if they were pagan Moabite girls, they had become family for Naomi. And it would be hard to just pick up one day and say, I'm done with you girls, leaving you behind. Life had intertwined them together in a way that was good but hard. But at a certain point on the trip, Naomi stopped and said, girls, this far and no further for you. This is my journey to go on my own. It doesn't make sense for you to leave your homeland, to cross outside of the border of Moab, and to leave all that you know, all your national gods, all your family, forsaking your parents and everything you've ever grown up with for something that is completely unknown and a god you know nothing about. She said, listen, years and years ago, I left my home, Bethlehem, with a family. I had a husband and I had boys and we made a hard choice in a hard place and we walked all the way to Moab so that we could find life, food to survive on. You girls don't have a husband. There is nothing you are walking towards at this moment. This is my journey. You stay here. Turn around. Go back to your mom's house. Scripture tells us that their moms and dads were still alive. So in that day, if the husband died, it would make sense for the Moabite girls to go back to their homes and be brought back under the governance of their family so they could be taken care of and protected and fed and hopefully find another husband at some point. Naomi said, listen, um, it made sense when I left. It doesn't make sense for you to leave. You're not going to get husbands if you come with me. If you come with me to my land, to Israel, you are a pagan Moabite false God-worshipping, unclean individual who is a widow. 
You are untouchable. Nobody will marry you. You will never have a future or a family in my land. Stay here. She put the hard sell on. Naomi was saying, listen, you have permission to leave me. Our relationship is unchanged. I love you, but you need to stay for your own benefit. She was giving them permission and thanking them for their friendship and their faithfulness. She even went so far to say this, may my God, the God Yahweh, show you his hesed, which is the Hebrew word that we don't see in our English Bible. You will read it in the term grace and mercy or loving kindness, okay, in your scriptures. And it's this rich word that means the covenant faithfulness, the provision of God, the love of God, the all-encompassing goodness of God towards his people. She said to two Moabite pagan girls, may Yahweh show you his loving kindness. May he be a blessing to you. Your conduct has been so blameless before me that I'm asking God to turn his face to you and shine it upon you to make it pagan Moabite girls and that his covenant faithfulness, I pray, would extend to both of you, even though you're foreigners to him, but you got to stay because there's nothing for you in Israel. And so there they are on the road somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem. Three women huddled together, scripture says, weeping and grieving and sorrowful as she's saying, go back. And they're saying, we don't want to, we love you. And she's saying, I love you, go, my God be with you. And they're saying, we don't know what we want to do. See, Naomi knew that her nation would never accept those girls. If they returned, three of them together, they would be in a desperate place because while they wouldn't accept the pagan widow Moabite girls, they probably weren't going to accept Naomi either. The reality is she abandoned God with her family. She left the promised land. She's the black sheep of the family. She's the one that turned her back on Yahweh and his covenant faithfulness. And if she walks back into Israel, what her family is going to say is you deserved it. Everything you got, you deserve. Elimelech died because he left God's promised land. Their husband, their, their, your children died because they married pagan Moabite girls. All this is just God's judgment. We won't touch you with a 10-foot pole, Naomi. That's what she was expecting when she returned home. And she didn't want to bring those girls with her into that situation because if they treated her like that, how were they going to treat the pagan girls? She was worried for them. And so she says this, if we return, it's going to be desperate. And you're not listening to what I've told you so far, so I'm going to give you one more piece of logic. I'm too old to get pregnant again, and I don't even have a husband, is what she said. She's referencing an Old Testament law called the law of the Leverite marriage, which basically means the law of brother marriage, okay? So in the Old Testament, if there uh, are two brothers and one of them gets married and then dies and doesn't have a son, then the next brothers to fulfill the role, marry that wife, produce a son, and that son will carry on his dead brother's name. That's the honorable thing to do according to the law. It's the law of Leverite marriage. And Naomi says, listen, girls, according to my rules of my faith, I can't even produce for you another husband. And in the laughable, like 
out there, never going to happen. But if it kind of accidentally happened in some way that tonight I had a husband and tonight I got pregnant with a boy, would you wait for him to become of age so that you could marry him? Would you live chaste and refrain from relationship with men until my boy grew up to be of age to provide for you so that then you could be married again? If you do, you'll miss all of your childbearing years. You still wouldn't have a family and a hope. She's dropping some solid, sorrowful logic on them. She says, listen, I can't, I can't even fulfill God's law for you. You need to return and go back. God has been against me my whole life, she says. I have no reason to believe that anything is going to change. And for the sake of yourself, don't come with me. For the sake of yourself, don't endure more heartache. I'm bad luck is what she's saying. Don't stay with me. I will be a black mark on your life for the rest of your life. I am heartache and trouble. My name is bitter. Stop calling me pleasantness and just call me bitter because that's who I am. But girls, you don't have to be. Go. Go and return to your people. And that's where the story leaves off today. Three women on a roadside, incredibly vulnerable, heartbroken over the way life has gone. And it's not a great story, is it? I mean, the reality of this portion of Ruth is heart-wrenching if we think about it. If you can put your mind as you are Naomi, or if you're a guy as Elimelech and the tough choices you have to make in a situation to save your family from sure death, it may not be a great story, but it's raw and it's real. This is life at times. A family that starts off so well but hard times led to hard choices to a point where they almost had absolutely nothing left. So Elimelech said, we got to do something and I'm going to make a hard choice. I'm going to take my family away from God to find food, to save their lives. But now Naomi is coming back without the three she left with. Everything she moved to Moab with was taken away from her. And she's going back with nothing that she started with. Bethlehem gave her family famine. Moab gave her family death. And they had to make hard choices in hard places. And some might have been sinful and some might not have been sinful. But lots of choices were made. All told, Naomi has no home. And it is uncertain what will happen when she arrives back to God's promised land. She doesn't know if she be, will be received again. She wasn't sure. But Bethlehem seemed like the last glimmer of hope for her. Or at least it was the place that she could go and live out her remaining days at least closer to God than she had been for the rest, previous parts of her life. Things were heavy on her heart. Her future, her love for Orpha and Ruth, the vulnerability of her situation, the fear of traveling a long distance, of being rejected when she got home. And in all of this, it seems like God was absent from Naomi's suffering. Where was God when her husband died? Where was God when the famine struck the land? Where was God when her sons were sickly and wasting away? Where was God when her sons died? Where was God when she was on this journey and weeping? Where was he? From Naomi's perspective, it looks like God abandoned her because she'd abandoned God, right? She'd left the promised land. But God had not abandoned Naomi or her family. He was working out this plan for her redemption. And in the darkest night of Naomi's life, she could not see 
the redemption on the horizon. It was just too dark. She was too clouded by all of the things that had gone on in life, and she couldn't see it. All she knew was that she had this deep longing in her heart to return to where there was a rumor of bread. It wasn't even promised. It was just a rumor of bread. And so she turned her face towards God, and she started walking the path back towards Bethlehem. Can you relate in some way to this story? Can you relate with a heavy burden that is too great to bear, something that you've carried around for a while that is significant? Can you relate to being between a rock and a hard spot? No choice is a good choice, but something has to be done. Hard choices in hard places. Unknown, vulnerability, and when the time comes, it seems like No matter which direction you turn, you're hemmed in on every single side by something difficult. Has anybody been in a place like that? Maybe I'm the only one. Um, See, life sometimes gets you to a point where you struggle and you struggle and you climb the mountain and you work as hard as you can only to get to the top of the mountain and you think you've made it out of that obstacle and you realize there's another peak in front of you. And it's not over. And it looks even worse than the one before you. So what is that heavy load in your life? What are the hard choices that you are faced with? What are the hard choices that you made, but now you're living with the consequences of? Where do you feel vulnerable and insecure? Perhaps, though, it's not you. Okay. Perhaps it is not you that is vulnerable this morning. Perhaps you know someone that is vulnerable. Perhaps you know someone who is in this kind of situation, a friend or a family member who is going through the ringer and it never stops. And just when you think they're going to come up for air, another wave knocks them sideways. Their boat capsizes and they're sinking in the depths of it. Maybe they've done it because of their own choices. And you've tried to help them see these choices aren't right. But they're digging their hole deeper and deeper. And you feel for them because they're feeling the suffering. Maybe it wasn't choices that they have made that were sinful. Maybe life at this point, because we live in a fallen world, has dealt them blow after blow after blow. And regardless of how they ended up where they are, they are wrung out and spent and have nothing left. Rest assured, even in the darkest nights, when it feels like you or your friend is the farthest from the promised land, the farthest from the covenant blessing, the farthest from God's people, the farthest from the presence of God that you have ever been. God is not absent or far off. God is not limited to a physical border. God's nation is the entire world, and wherever you happen to be ending up is where God is. He is working out redemption for Naomi's family and for ours as well. You can't see it yet in the story, perhaps, but redemption is coming for Naomi. Maybe not in the ways that we would think and maybe not in the ways that we would force redemption, but in God's perfect timing, redemption will come for his family. And we will begin to see that work out next week. Even in the midst of sorrow, we will see where love begins to take them. But this morning, we're simply left with a picture of lament. 
just lament. And we need to know, and it's not said very often, we need to know that it is okay to mourn in worship. That it is okay to lament. Scripture is full of godly, worshipful laments, which is simply this, addressing God as who he is. God, you're God. And then saying, I've got a big complaint, and I can't do anything about this, and I'm sorrowful and woeful, and things are going wrong. Will you please fix this? And then it closes. The lament prayer closes with, God, I'm going to act as if you've already fixed it. I'm going to believe that you've already resolved this for me and my family or my friends, and I'm going to praise you as if you've already done it because you are God, and I believe you will. And then you live according to the faith that God will work the redemption, even if you can't see it. I want to read to you a psalm, Psalm 86. It's titled, Great is Your Steadfast Love, but it's a lament. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You're my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry out all the day. You feel, will you fill my soul with gladness again? For to you, Lord, I lift up my soul. You, Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to everyone who calls upon you. So give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call on you and you answer me. There is no one like you among all the gods, Lord nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship you and will glorify your name. For you are great and you do wondrous things because you alone are God. So teach me your ways, Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love to me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. This is a lament from the heart of the psalmist who says, things have really gone bad and I don't know how to fix it, but you're God and you can fix it. And I'm going to act now as if you've already fixed it. At church, we don't often give freedom for this kind of worship. We put on the face and we sing the happy songs, right? Everything's great. Jesus is great. Life is okay, but we're doing good because God is good. But in reality, behind all of that, we suffer and we're lamenting. And we need to know as Christians, it is biblical to lament. Scripture and God give us the freedom to cry out in a time of need, desperately, full of pain and sorrow on our behalf or on behalf of someone else. It is healthy to mourn and repent of the sinful things that we have done and said. But it is also healthy to lament the things that have been done to us that we had no control over. The choices that were made for us that we didn't have any say in, but put us in a place that we couldn't get out of. There is freedom to worship God this way. And it is freeing to worship God this way. To draw nearer to God as Naomi did no matter how your life looks at the moment, no matter where life seems to have taken you, redemption is never out of reach. And the advice that I find myself giving in this season more often than not 
is turn your face towards God and walk towards him and don't sin. No matter how bad life gets, walk towards God and don't sin. Life is miserable. Okay, I'm sorry, and I'm praying with you. Turn your face towards God and walk and don't sin. Eventually, you'll end up there with God. He is ready to meet you. This morning, I want us to do what Naomi did. I want us to sit in the fact that there are times we need to lament. And she, in her lament, took one foot after the other to draw nearer to God and the rumor of bread. She didn't even know if it was going to pan out. We, on the other hand, can look back at Scripture and go, oh, we know it worked out for Naomi, and we'll see that. But we know from the New Testament, Jesus came to earth and said, I am the bread of life. And anyone who hungers, eats of this bread, will not hunger again. And so in our life, in our lament, in our sorrow, in interceding for other people, we should do the same thing Naomi did, did and turn our hearts and faces towards God and walk towards the promise of bread. She wanted bread for her stomach. We have bread for our souls. And when all we have to offer is mourning and lament, and brokenness, that's all God wants, is us just to turn our face towards him and walk. This morning, we have bread for your souls in the form of the communion, the time when Jesus met with his disciples and said, I am the bread of life. I am the spotless lamb. I am the one who will die for the sins of the world. So if you lament, come and eat of this. And let me work a work in you. Let me begin to work that redemption which you long for. So as we worship this morning, it's nothing fancy. This is you and God on behalf of your own life or someone you know to come and receive. Walk towards the bread and the hope of redemption. And when you turn and walk back to your seat, walk back knowing that God is working something even if you can't see the resolution yet. If it's your life, lament to God this morning. If it's on behalf of someone else, cry out to God for someone else. I believe we all know someone. We might not want to think about our own life, but we all know someone who needs it. And this morning, if you see someone who is kneeling at the altar in prayer or in the back praying where no one can see them, but you see them, will you go put your arm around them and join them on their journey, you don't have to say much. You might not have to say anything. Just that arm is a tangible representation of God's promise that you are not alone in the midst of your lament. As we worship, come and receive and trust that God is working a redemption for you and for your heart and for your life.